You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. This is Randy Bolander, the record, the intro in the car edition of the podcast. Uh, here's the story. Crazy week, just running right and left. And I know that if I don't record the intro to this right now, there will be no podcast until like maybe Thursday. So you do what you can, which means record it in the car. Hope everything is going well in your world. We are doing well. Kids are uh, busy in school, busy with after school activities, busy with activities into the night, sometimes busy over the night and then busy again in the morning. But enjoying it. You know what? This is the stuff life is made of. I have dubbed myself the chief vibe officer of the mornings. Now, I'll be first to tell you, I've not done a very good job at this at times, but I am now taking responsibility for the mood of the house, which means I get up, I crank up the worship music, I put on a smiling face, no matter what face my children bring down the stairs. And man, we make it happen. And you know what? It's a little contagious. I wouldn't say it's uh, viral yet, but it's, you know, people are getting it. We're getting there. This week, we talked about the nature of what it means to live an obedient life and what the payoff is long-term of obedience in several areas. Every time you obey the Lord, it's actually a trade-off. To say yes to the Lord means you say no to something else. So we talk about four different areas and what the no is that comes with the yes to God in those areas. Here you go from the bridge on Sunday, obedience. Imagine just for a second, somebody wanted to write a magazine feature about your life, okay? Your family, your life, uh, if you're single, just by yourself, just whatever the case, they want to write a magazine feature. Some of you are like, that sounds like a nightmare. It kind of does. When we were adopting like crazy, we went on that serial adoption binge a few years ago and <laughs> added just a bunch of kids to our house. Everybody's like, you guys need a reality show. And I'm like, that's the worst idea ever. Those things never end well for people. Right? You know, it's just they always fall apart. But let's say they want to write a magazine feature about you. And for whatever reason, you agree to do the interview. They really want to get down in the nitty-gritty. They really want to understand who you are. They really want to tell your whole story. So they're going to come to your house for about 40 minutes on Tuesday, about 20 after 3. They're like, 40 minutes? You want to tell my whole story? You want to learn everything? If you come to my house at 3.20 for 40 minutes, you would call the authorities. Like, it's crazy at our house in that window. Kids are getting home from school and everything. Like, don't look at those 40 minutes and tell my whole story. Most of you would protest, even if you wanted the feature written. You know there's no way that you can understand your life in a just 40-minute window. If you want to understand who we are, you got to come sit at the table for a while. you got to sit and listen to the same jokes over and over again. you got to understand why we tell that story. You've got to spend time. Last week, as we went through Deuteronomy 28, we talked about the idea of blessings and cursings and how they tip on the fulcrum of obedience. And that might have been a bit of a new idea to you. You might never really have thought about that. 
We have a view of a very egalitarian God that treats everyone the same. God loves everyone the same, and all of us get a better shake than we really deserve, but not everybody gets the exact same outcome. He actually leaves us far more in charge of the trajectory of our lives than we might imagine. We might be on a rocket ship hurtling towards destiny, but we are actually at a control panel and we get to push some buttons. Is God sovereign? Yes. But in His sovereignty, He gives us the dignity to choose so many things, including blessings or cursings, and we choose those when we choose to obey or disobey. Now, this is kind of a mind-blowing idea. The God of the universe says, I'm going to give you some say in how things turn out. And because that's such a strange idea, I wanted to come back around to it this week and kind of revisit it. Because just to throw out kind of an odd idea and never go back to it, it's not, it's not really good scholarship, it's not really good discipleship. When things seem challenging to us when we read them in Scripture, look for other places in Scripture where it talks about it. It's called letting the Bible interpret the Bible. We did that last week when we talked about that phrase of going in and going out and realized, oh, there's a lot more to that. It talks a lot about leadership and, and, and that sort of thing. This week, we need a bigger picture of what the Bible is saying to get our head around the relationship of obedience and blessing. I say all that to say this. Last week was really meant to be a kind of a standalone message, but this week I just really felt nudged to go back and revisit that idea of obedience because obedience is something we struggle with in that window of time between like two and death. You know, like that, that little narrow sliver of time from the, from the moment you have a will until they put you in the box, you, you really, you struggle with the idea of not liking to be told what to do. And where did that tizzy about obedience ever start? Well, of course, it started shortly after creation. Early in the story of man, Genesis 3, the devil in the form of a serpent prods people about what God really said with a question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? This is like page one of the devil's operating system manual, okay? If there is a demon school, this is a 101 level class because it's to take the idea and lie about something that God has said. Now Eve counters him. She tells him the truth. She starts out really good here. I think she actually gets a bad rap. But she starts out by saying, no, he said, we can't eat from that tree. We can eat from these other trees. We can't eat from that tree. Satan completely ignores her protests and starts arguing with her. Oh, you won't die. You won't really die. And of course, they eat the fruit. They didn't die like they thought they might have. They actually died in a much more drastic way. They die spiritually. Their bodies continue, but their hearts are separated from God the Father because God wanted obedience. Externally, it looked fine. They eat the fruit. We don't feel dead. Internally, it was a whole different story. God had spoken to them. They were disobedient. They started dying on the inside. Some of you say, I wish God would speak to me. I wish he would just tell me what to do. Only to find out that when he actually speaks to you and tells you what to do, it gets even harder than when he wasn't speaking to you. Because suddenly you're faced with a decision. You know, before I was kind of a mumbo-jumbo land, but now I've got to obey or I've got to not obey. When it comes to obeying, there's one Hebrew word for obey. We talked about this last week. I want to go back and revisit it. The word shama. It means to listen intelligently and answer appropriately. Shama. 
It's most often used in the Bible to be translated as obey, but sometimes shama is translated hear. In those passages in the Old Testament where you see the word hear, you can almost always replace it with the word obey. Deuteronomy 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You could also say, and be technically correct, obey, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Here's where we run into trouble. Shama is an example of the difference between Hebrew thinking, which stresses physical action, and Greek and Western culture, which stresses mental activity. When Hebrew thinkers get a directive from the Lord, their next step is action. To hear it is to obey. When Western thinkers get a word from the Lord, their initial action is to say, well, we need to think about this. We need to weigh it out. Pros, cons, do a SWOT analysis, get a whiteboard in here. If we can get enough people in here, we can talk ourselves out of this. It's completely different than Hebrew thinking. And we would both say that we're trying to be obedient. Matthew eleven fifteen says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You could also say, He who has ears to obey. It's the same word. He who has ears to obey, let him obey. When God tells us to obey, our response is to think about it. The Hebrew response is to act, to listen intelligently, and to answer appropriately. I just want to propose that as a body, as families, and as individuals, we set our hearts to obey. I'd like to put this idea in your head before you hear the Lord speaking to you, that you would determine that when He speaks, I will obey. I assure you, making the decision now before He speaks is easier than making it after. Because after There's all kinds of baggage with that. Well, let's get the whiteboard again. Let's figure it out. No, no. To live a life of obedience is to determine before he speaks, I will obey. I want to talk today about the practice of obedience. Not just the command obey, not just the action, but where obedience is a lifestyle that you assume. If he says it, we're going to do it. In Deuteronomy 28, the promise of blessings will pursue those who obey, and curses will pursue those who disobey. If you didn't hear last week's message, that might be a new idea to you. I'd encourage you to go back and and listen to it. It'll explain that a little bit better. But to obey refers to a specific command, but the word obedience is the lifestyle we want to embrace. We don't want to take the word of the Lord on a case-by-case basis. We just want to give Him our wholehearted yes and say, if you speak, we'll do. If you've been around a three-year-old very long, you know that the word no is hardwired into them, isn't it? Like, we've had some kids that I think in the middle of the night, if you poked them at three years old, they'd say no. It's just, it's the way they're wired. Most kids go through a phase in which the word no is the answer to everything until it's replaced with the even more difficult, I can do it myself, when they often can't do it themselves. But that word no is hardwired into a lot of our spirits. Years ago, we were doing this outreach at a, uh, a bike path, handing out water bottles, just telling, them, telling people God loves you and just wanted to show you by giving you a, a bottle of water. We weren't really engaging people in long conversations. It wasn't a high-pressure situation. We weren't chasing them down or coming to their door. We were just handing out water bottles. It's like 105, okay? It's dangerously hot. People are staggering off the trail with water dripping, you know, dragging their bikes behind them to the car, 
hey, would you like a bottle of water? Four out of five people go, no. They're dying of thirst. And it's easier to say no than it is to engage with somebody. We finally quit saying, would you like a bottle of water? And we would just tell them, hey, your water's here. Oh, they would take that. We just want to give you water to show you God. But there's, we're so, it's easier to say no to almost anything. Because when we say no, the whole question goes away. Given the option, people on the verge of a heat stroke will say no to cold water. Most of them probably got in the car and thought, oh, I wish I had some water. But they were hardwired for a no. If we eliminate the question and just give it to them, they take it. To live a life of blessing is to eliminate the question in our lives and say, I will obey whatever he asks. Some people chafe against that idea that God is a God who requires obedience. I recently heard somebody in a podcast say, I don't believe in a God that would require me to do certain things. That's just, I, I struggle with that. Or, or I've also heard people say, well, maybe that's the God of the Old Testament. He had all these rules. But, you know, Jesus is, is more about love your neighbor and be kind and, and just, you know, be happy. But the word obedience, that, that thing that we want from our kids, the word obedience is mentioned in the New Testament 12 times. It's only mentioned in the Old Testament once. When you see something in the Bible that is mentioned in the New Testament at a 12 to 1 ratio, it's pretty important to the life that we live. Obedience is meant to be at the forefront of believers' minds rather than living our lives, making a once or twice a year decision based on what we think he might be saying. If you can develop a hardwired yes in your heart to be obedient to the Lord, you will live in the blessing of the Lord. That song you sang this morning about the goodness of the Lord following us. You get a hardwired yes in your heart, you will look back over time and you will say, oh, that yes in my heart has paid off with blessing after blessing after blessing. Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I want to live a life of obedience that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, his eye is on me. And he's counseling me along the way. How else can we explain the long-term blessing of our lives, other than God watching out for us. Do you know anybody that has just crazy stories of obedience and blessing? Like, you look at these people and you go, you make me nervous. But you say yes, and you say yes, and you say yes, and it always works out. The Lord blesses them. And even though you've watched it, you don't know if it's like, well, you want to live that way? I don't know. But I'm glad they do. Like George. No one has had a more hardwired yes in his heart than George, although he had a rough start. As a young man, his father was, uh, worked for the, uh, the uh, diplomatic society. His father carried a lot of cash, and at 14 years old, he was pilfering money from the, from the purse in his dad's office. When he was 15, his mother passed away, and he was too busy drinking and playing cards to go to her bedside to even say goodbye. Somewhere along the line, though, George had an encounter with the Lord. He got invited to a little prayer meeting at somebody's house. And in that prayer meeting, he sensed Jesus. And later he said, even though I scarcely had any idea of who God was, that evening was the turning point in my life. Along with faith in Jesus, George was determined to say yes to every question that the Lord asked him. He understood that hearing and doing should be the same thing. And that thieving, little, cold-hearted convert that we're talking about grew into the man that some of you know as George Mueller, 
who in the 1800s cared for 10,000 orphans in England and cared for them with such excellence that the aristocracy of England hated him for it because he was raising their station in life. The orphans that came through George Mueller's program didn't end up living little piddly existences. No, they went on to get higher education and they, they bettered themselves. And he drove people crazy because he was lifting those orphans above their station in life. George was determined to do what the Lord spoke to him without giving it a second thought. And he wrote this, and this has weight with me. I mean, George Mueller, he wrote, if God does bless us in reading his word, he expects that we should be obedient children and that we should accept the word as his will and carry it into practice. If this be neglected, you will find the reading of the word, even if accompanied by prayer, meditation, and faith will do you little good. George Mueller said, you don't have a yes in your spirit? Read, go to the prayer meetings, do all that stuff. doesn't matter. It doesn't pay off. He is best known for caring for 10,000 orphans. And I think if you care for 10,000 orphans, that's enough. All right? You have, you've done your duty. You should be able to lean back and feel like you've made a contribution to society. Most people don't realize he was also a prolific preacher. And before the days of air travel, he traveled 200,000 miles preaching the gospel in his lifetime. He raised funds on top of what it took to take care of the orphans to print a million and a half New Testaments to distribute across Europe at a time when all of that distribution was done by hand. He was one of the major backers who financially contributed to Hudson Taylor and contributed to opening the gospel or opening China to the gospel. This guy with 10,000 orphans under his care. All the guy, the guy is doing this is also at the same time bowing his head with children at dinner time because they didn't have enough to eat and they would pray and a truck would drive by and a box of fruit would fall off. Why does George have these crazy stories of faith? Because he said yes in his heart before the opportunities came along. He's lived a life of obedience. Everybody wants those stories. You get those stories by that default yes in your heart. So I want to take a look at that word obedience, that fulcrum between blessing and cursing from Deuteronomy 28 and talk very practically about how to live it out in a couple of different areas of your life. The Apostle Paul was a immensely practical thinker, okay? He could have done anything, but he chose just to do a few things, and he did all of those few things really for one thing. In Romans 1.5, he says, he's talking about Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. In other words, it is Jesus that brought us where we're at. We're just here by the grace of God. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. He said, I am putting all my energy that the church and the individuals in the church would live obedient lives because then obedience is blessing. Paul said, I'm dedicating my life and my reputation to make people understand that to live out of obedience is really the abundant life. So I want to talk about four areas where your obedience will lead to blessing. There are a million, all right? But we're not going to preach a million blessings. We're just talking about four. I noticed, by the way, the clock is back. I don't take that personally. I don't know where that, I don't know where it went last week, but it's back. Uh, what's that? Oh, the battery died last week. That wasn't my fault either, Mark. But uh, anyway, I was preaching last week, and of course, we were, we were confined by a, by a noon uh, chief start. 
but they don't start till seven tonight. So no. <laughs> I, I, I would also like to point out that I included a blessing of the Chiefs in the benediction, and we did win for the first week in a while. So I'm not saying it's all my, my doing, but I did my part. I, che- I, obeyed. I obeyed. I chose these four areas for a reason. These four areas we're going to talk about. I chose them because they have high return. The return is way faster than you think if you're obedient in these areas. And they're applicable to all of us. Four areas of obedience, each one involving an area of surrender because you can't say yes to the Lord without saying no to something else. Many of you would love to say yes to the Lord. It's the no part you can't swallow. Oh, I would love to go do, do, do. Okay, but that means you can't do that. Oh, can I do both? No, not unless you can bilocate. All right, that's a Star Trek thing. You can't bilocate. You can only be in one place at one time. To say yes to something means to say no to something. So I can talk about yes all day long, but if we don't get real nitty-gritty on the no, we'll never say yes. First obedient part. Obedient in heart. Coming into internal, internal agreement with God's Word. Not just reading it, but agreeing it. It is possible to spend time with the Lord, hear His Word, even ponder His Word, and never actually settle on obedience to His Word. You know what God says about something, but you're the one going, yeah, but it is complicated. You know, there's there another side here. Have you ever had a disagreement with a coworker or a spouse, and you didn't finish it, and you had to hold it together in front of people? Some of you are like, were you in my car this morning? No. Uh, but you know what I'm saying. It's like you're, you're really, and then you, and you see each other. And you, you just you do what you have to do, okay? Some people live in that internal disagreement with God. They read what the Word says, but they got some issues about that, and they're kind of struggling, and, and they don't know. And they live in that tension. Obedience in your heart means this. You surrender your opinions in exchange for His opinions. You surrender your opinions in exchange for his opinions. Hebrews 4, 7, 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Well, that's frustrating. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, you purify your hearts. Submit. It's like, oh, he's got, the Lord's got a mind of his own. And he thinks things about things that I may think differently about him. And when that happens, I've got to adjust my thinking But because he, he's not changing. We see this on a daily basis as the spirit of the age comes into conflict with the word of the Lord in the day that we live in. And it's growing more and more common. And we try and excuse our ambiguity about certain issues by saying, well, it's complicated. You know, there's two sides to everything. Not everything. Some things are actually very clear when you submit yourselves to the word of the Lord. Let me give you an awkward example close to home. Some of you are like, oh, he's going to do it again. Okay, no, let's just... Prairie Village. Don't laugh yet, okay? Prairie Village is debating a law, or I wouldn't call it a law, ordinance, I guess, whatever, whatever Prairie Village does. Uh, is, is debating a Prairie Village thing, rule, prohibiting conversion therapy of people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Now, let me stop for a second. I would never condone everything that has been done in the name of con- conversion therapy. I just would never. There's so much. That's such a big umbrella. So many things that I think I would, I would say, oh, that'd be terrible. I wouldn't condone everything that's done in the name of the church. 
All right, so, so don't take this as a blanket endorsement of something by any means. I'm sure there are things, damage I'm sure has been done by people who call the conversion therapy, undoubtedly. However, it's an ordinance that will prohibit trained counselors from talking with someone with same-sex attraction about the potential to change their lives. Someone who's struggling goes to a counselor, says, this is what I'm struggling with, and that counselor now can't talk about the issue that they went to the client for. Now, they're assuring us that it exempts all churches based on the First Amendment, which I thought is actually a strange legal argument for exempting churches. But it is the first step in being unable to say that if you struggle with same-sex attraction, you can never change. The ordinance will prohibit a professional counselor from extending a measure of hope to someone who came to them looking for that hope. Good people who can mean well will be bullied into agreement with the world on this one issue. The gospel holds out hope for every person. And to, to obey is to come into agreement with what the Bible and what God says about things like sexuality and hope and the fact that we can change and the fact that the way we were born, which is into sin for all of us, is not the way that we have to stay. And yet we are pressed internally to not come into agreement with what the Bible says about that. And it's not personal about people. We're just saying we're on the Lord's side, even if his position is something that would be unpopular because we obey or we value obedience over comfort. Now, be careful because there's a, you may be comfortable with that level of obedience. There may be another area that he steps up to. You're like, oh, I don't know about that. My point is not this one issue. My point is obedience in your heart means you surrender your right to opinions in exchange for his opinions. And you align, when you, your heart feels differently than what the word says, you beat your heart with a hammer until it comes into alignment. But you don't live with the tension, and you don't convince yourself that God said something else. You have to come into agreement with that. Obedience in heart. Feeling about things like God feels about things and adjusting our feelings to match His. Second layer of obedience. Obedience in speech or speaking in agreement with God's plan. You say, what's the surrender about our speech? It is pursuing, in pursuing obedient speech, you surrender your tongue to honor God and honor people. I've said this before. Kids get in trouble for what they do, right? What's the most common question a parent asks children? What did you do that for? They never know. Do they? <laughs> You know, you, you walk in, they've taken paint in from the garage and painted a big circle on their wall. What did you do that for? And they're standing there with the, I don't know, I don't know why I did that. Kids get in trouble for what they do. Adults get in trouble for what they say. When you ask them, what did you say that for? They're like the kid with the paintbrush. I don't know, I don't know why I said it. I just said it. Most of the trouble that you and I have gotten into over the past couple of years have been things that we said rather than what we do. If you latch onto one thing in regard to obedience, get this one along with me, both you and I would have a lot less trouble if we would obey this one little proverb. Okay, just one little proverb. If you're already overwhelmed with information this morning and you're going, he's got two more areas to talk about, just get this one. You can mentally check out. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever keeps his mouth 
and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Like, that's it? You you can control your speech and you actually can keep yourself out of trouble? Why is this so hard for us? It makes sense. Why is it so difficult? In the United States, in particular, we have a love affair with our own opinions. And we feel a strange mandate to share them, don't we? We just feel like everybody really should know how I feel about things. And we're all grateful because we live in a country with First Amendment rights, and I think that is important to the point that I would argue to defend your First Amendment rights, even if I think you're a bit of a nutcase. Because I think you have a right to share your nutty views. And I got a few nutty ones myself. And I think at that point, I would want you to defend me. I think the First Amendment is very important. However, as a believer, we live under two constitutions. Like we actually have, there's like two documents that guide how we live, okay? One is under glass in Washington, D.C., U.S. Constitutions next to the Declaration of Independence that Nicolas Cage stole. That's not true. But the U.S. Constitution, glorious document written by James Madison. Ironically, it has led millions of people to freedom more than you might expect by a, for a document that was written by a man who owned slaves. But it was, it, the, I mean, the document has the Spirit of the Lord on it in a sense. It, it really, don't, don't take that out of context. It's not the Bible. I'm just saying the Lord moved to the point where people found freedom under that document that would not have found freedom under the leadership of the man who wrote the document. It like took a life of itself. So there's that constitution, and we live under that one, and we're grateful for that. The other one is the word of the Lord, the Bible. It's written on pages, also the word written on our hearts, given by the Holy Spirit, and it's about a perfect man, and he has the right to rule the earth. And there are times when obeying his kingdom constitution or the established way of the Lord and the U.S. Constitution don't line up. When that happens, we are citizens of a higher law. And it's not about our rights. It's usually about surrendering them. Ephesians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true when the kingdom mandates things that the nation forbids. And it is true when the kingdom forbids things that the nation allows. Our nation would say, you can say whatever you want. It's your right. You can say anything in this thing. You can't say fire in a crowded theater, but almost everything else you can say. But the higher kingdom says in Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Some versions say a fool speaks all of his mind. Hear me. There are situations where speaking our mind may be our constitutional right and a kingdom violation at the same time. Is it your right? Yes, under the Constitution. Is it wise, or is it allowed in the kingdom? No. Where are you going to spend eternity? In the kingdom. That's the Constitution that gets final word in your life. Why do we struggle with keeping our thoughts to ourselves? Even though we understand there's a higher kingdom value, that that it would be smart to hold our tongue, but yet we struggle because it's... It's almost like in our nation, it's cowardly 
to withhold your own opinion. And we are so fond of our own opinions, we'd rather display ungodly behavior than be thought of as a coward. As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we are relieved of the responsibility of voicing our every thought. It's not on us anymore. We're empowered not to respond to people who disagree with us. Let me... This will be a life changer for some of you. It is possible on Facebook to scroll past something stupid. That's the whole thing. That's the whole, like, that's the whole instruction. You just let that puppy go. It just disappears off the top of your screen. It's gone. You don't, you don't have to respond. You don't have, well, you know, actually, and you go, you know, you, you, can, you can live your life without having to do that. And it actually goes smoother. We are free to move about the cabin and be in the presence of people who are wrong without feeling the pressure to have to tell them all the time. In fact, sometimes our obedience to the greater kingdom constitution requires our silence. And like when the only thing that comes to mind to say does not reflect well on the kingdom. Obedient speech is speech that extends grace to other people. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for the building up and fits the occasion that it may be of grace to those who hear. When we were in Cincinnati, there was a woman who worked the front desk. Her name was Gail Ryder, and Gail's, uh, several of her family worked there at the church. Her husband was a tech guy. Her kids were singer-songwriters, and Gail was the perfect front desk person. I always said her speaking voice was more pleasant than many people's singing voices. You know, it was just, and, and I remember just looking forward to walking through the foyer on the way to my office because Gail always had something, it was like a 30-second journey, but there was always something pleasant being said. Everything she said, it was just seasoned with such grace. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you might know how to answer each person. Funny thing about salt is you really recognize it when it's not there, don't you? It's like... This is terrible. There's no salt. It says, let your speech be seasoned with grace. Let it be in there, and it, it makes everything go better. Obedient speech is seasoned with grace. Obedient speech is natural in God's presence. In other words, when you're speaking obediently to the Lord, you can say things aware of His presence, and you don't flinch. We youth pastored for seven years in our early 20s. And uh, it's striking me funny now that all of those kids that we youth pastored have aged at the same rate we have. You don't think about that. In my mind, they're all, made, boy, those kids must be 25 now. They're all in their 40s, you know? And I got a text uh, earlier this week from one of the kids that we, kids, he's 40, he's got a kids of his own. He texted me a picture of the front door of a hotel with the message, do you recognize the scene of the crime? And instantly I did. I said, yeah, 30 years ago, I caught two kids with a bottle of vodka in one of those rooms. Yeah, I remember, you know, it's like certain things you remember on these, these youth trips. As a youth pastor, one of the things I challenged kids with was, you know, because you can ask them, what'd you do that for? I don't know. Nobody knows why they did anything. But you would tell them, live your life in a such a way that you would be comfortable if the Lord was right there. You know, would you have done that if Jesus was right there? 
But again, kids get in trouble for what they do. We get in trouble for what we say. So I ask us, would we say that if we were really fully aware of his presence sitting right next to us? And theologically, you all know he's there anyway. But think of him physically there. Would you say that? Obedient speech is speech that would be natural in his presence. Psalm 19, 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Obedient speech produces an overflow of good in your life. We've been talking about obedience and speech just keeping us out of trouble. It does more than that. It actually overflows good in your life when you speak obediently. Luke 6.45, Jesus is teaching a great multitude here. And he tells them, a good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Stop there for a moment. You know people like that. They live with the understanding of the blessings of God and they speak well of people and blessing seems to follow them. He goes on to say that the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the goodness within you, words come out and good just manifests itself around you. The goodness within you is reflected in the abundance of your heart and out of that you speak and blessings follow people who speak out of obedience. It is a form of naturally supernatural prophecy for you to speak positively about people and things. It's speech that is obedient to him. I want to be a person who exudes goodness. I want to be a person who comes into the meeting and then people say, the meeting got better because of how they spoke. We want to be obedient in our heart. We want to be obedient in our speech. We want to be obedient in our service demonstrating agreement with God's plan, okay? Well, how, what do you surrender with service? You surrender your present to change the future. You surrender your time right now to change the future. That's what it means to start a church, okay? There are easier ways to do what we're doing. There are people doing this all over town in buildings that work better and work better for their kids. They don't have to set things. I mean, if all you wanted to do is gather, we're surrendering our present right now to change the future. That in time, as the Lord gives, it's just serving, even attending here. I, I totally get it. You're like, Randy, going to this church is a work of service. I get it. Thank you for serving. Everyone believes in service, but everybody is busy. And both of those things are true, but serving, whether it be in setting up or serving in children or serving your neighbor, all of that fights against your schedule because you're legitimately busy. Before we make this next point, can we just agree that as followers of Jesus, the goal is to be like Jesus? I mean, is that simple enough? If you're going to follow him, you want to be like him? 1 John 2.6 says, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be like Christ, you've got to look at how he walked. You cannot aspire to Christ-likeness without aspiring to service. You just can't. Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That he's who we want to be like? That's what he did. Matthew 23, 11 says, The greatest among you shall be a servant. That is the measure of what it means to follow him. If you're feeling really dangerous tonight, really risky, lay your head in the pillow and say, as you drift off to sleep, Lord, show me how I can serve. And then in the morning when ideas come, respond to those out of obedience. 
Jesus made you free, but what did he make you free to? Go off and live your lives? No, he made you free to serve. I'm going to jump ahead just a second. Uh, I'm only saying that for Greg who's working slides here. Uh, just because we're, we're a bit on time. I've got more to say on service, so we'll come back around to it. But the fourth area of obedience, I wanted to touch this real quickly, is obedience in giving back to the Lord. And I don't want to just say giving, but I want to say giving back to the Lord and recognize that this is not an overwhelming demand of His. When the Lord asks of your time and of your finances and of your talents, th that is not a ridiculous thing for Him to ask. We surrender our provision in recognition of who it belongs to. There are great debates in our home about who owns what. I settled, actually I didn't settle it. I encountered an ongoing battle between two of my daughters last night over a tube of toothpaste. As if toothpaste is gold and kept in a vault somewhere, and when it's gone, it's gone. It's like, it's like girls. But there's this great debate over whose is what, because we, 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 like, we have this idea, like my kids don't understand that, okay, actually, I act, finally I took the toothpaste away from him. I said, it's dad's toothpaste. What? It's dad's toothpaste. Mom gave it to me. Yeah, dad took it back. It was never really your toothpaste. We're just letting you use it. We want you to use it. Don't forget deodorant too. But it's not really yours. What you have, it's not really yours. All provision comes from him. And so when he asks, think about it, he asks, will you return some of what I've given to you as a way of discipline and obedience? We do that. It's his. Now, there's some debate in the Bible about the idea of tithing, or not in the Bible, there's some debate in the church about the idea of tithing. Some say that the expectation of tithing, 10%, is still in effect. Others would say that that's only an Old Testament concept. In the Testament of grace, it's thought of differently. And, uh, but remember, we learn about God's character from his covenants. So whenever you see that command to tithe, personally, I, I still think that's, that's applicable. But I know good people who love Jesus who see it differently. But God honors those who give and he does it in such a way with the tithe, so it's not about a set amount. He actually is very wise and says it is a percentage of it because he wants to celebrate the person with meager, meager resources giving their portion. He wants to look at that widow putting the two cents in and saying, you did it, good for you. He wants to celebrate that. Some people feel very proud of, about their giving. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. Probably that widow who put the two cents in didn't feel that great about it. She probably didn't think this is going to change the world. But Jesus noticed it. That's how we know tithing is not about money. It's about aligning our yes with what God said. And it's the only area of the Bible where he says, test me out. Try me. Doesn't tell us to test him anywhere else, but in Malachi 3.10, he, he said, bring the full tithe. Tithe is a word for a tenth. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. There might be food in my house. 
and therefore, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down blessings until there is no more need. And again, there's this debate. Well, isn't that an Old Testament idea? I mean, it's in Malachi, you know, granted it's near the end of the Old Testament, but is it really talked about in the New Testament? Sometimes when things are not mentioned a lot, it's because they are assumed. For instance, I make a little walk every morning, 6 a.m., school day. I go from each of my kids' rooms. I wake everybody up. I do not tell them, take off your pajamas and put on your clothes to wear to school. Why not? Because it's kind of assumed. All right? I don't, I don't give them a step-by-step -step thing because it's assumed. There are things that are not mentioned in the Old Testament not or in the New Testament, not because they're not in effect, but because they're kind of assumed. And we see that in Matthew 23, 23 where Jesus is saying to the religious people, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what he's saying is, you're paying your financial tithes, but you're not serving me in law, justice, and mercy. And he's saying those things are important, but he goes, you really should have done both. He's not relieving them of the expectation. He is saying, I actually have a greater expectation of you now than I did before. So these things you should have done without neglecting the others. You may wonder, well, how do I tithe? Like, I, maybe, I've, Randy, I've never done it. I've thought about it. I'm just confused. Just tithing 101. Look at your increase. Is it a paycheck? Is it a windfall somewhere? 10% of that is returned to the Lord. You place it back in God's hands. Like, do I just leave it on the deck and he comes and gets it? How does that work? You look out there. He didn't take it. I guess he wanted me to keep it. You go back out and get it again. No. You place your tithe. Say, well, where do I tithe? The Bible says you tithe to the storehouse. The storehouse was a specific area in the temple. Out of that, they fed the Levites and the priests who maintained the house of worship and the ministry. I've, I've heard people say you, ha you must tithe. I've heard people say tithe where you get fed. Tithe at your local church. I don't know that it's that exactly clear. Some people would say it is. It would benefit me to convince you that it was. But I, I'll just be real honest. I, I don't know that it's all that clear. What I do think is clear is for you to tithe into a place where you trust the leadership. And where you know it is going for its intended purpose, for the furtherance of the gospel, and for the provision of those who are in full-time ministry. And that may be a couple of different places for you. Deuteronomy 15.10. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudgingly when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work, and all that you undertake. I hope you know I'm not talking about this for money's sake. I'm talking about this because if we can crack this nut of obedience in these four areas, goodness will chase us down. If we can develop a lifestyle of obedience, we will find blessings from the Lord manifest over and over and over again. I want to ask if Rachel will come back up. Obedience in agreement Obedience in our speech, obedience in serving Him, obedience in giving, it places us in a position to receive from the Lord. Like it just, it lines all things up. And I can testify that 
in relation to our, be, our obedience, we have seen the provision and the blessing of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord chase us down in ways that I just never, ever thought was imaginable. Like, it's my story. I'm not George Mueller level yet, okay? We don't have 10,000 orphans. But I, I can tell you with as much authority as in my life, he honors his word. Stand with me for a minute. As Rachel just begins to play, I want to take just a moment before we close. And I want to read a blessing over you. We don't do this much in our tradition. It's just right out of Scripture. But it's also tied directly to obedience. Okay? So I really think you want to receive this blessing. You want to walk in it. But we realize walking in it means walking in obedience to Him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads before we read this. Some of you, as I talked about areas of obedience, something was, was tripped, and there's something gnawing at you that you know is the next step of obedience in your life. Could it be one of these four areas? Could have been totally unrelated. But you're, you're prompted something to do on Monday morning. There's a phone call to make. There's an announcement to make. You've got to, you've got to obey. I don't want to make light of that or, or I don't want to give you the idea that anybody thinks that's easy or not scary. I'm saying it's worthwhile. But if right where you are, there's an area that you're saying, I've got to say yes and I've got to say yes to him for your own sake. We're not going to gather around or anything, but let me just see, lift your hand. It's an area where you've got to obey. Lots of decisions. The next step is, you know what it is. So, Father, right now I ask for, the, for those that are saying, I have got to take this next step in obedience, that you would give them great grace. That you would give them great strength. Lord, we thank you for people who are saying, if, I, if I'm going to follow you, my life's got to reflect you. Would you move in strength and power?